podcast from Redeemer Christian Church in Amarillo, Texas. We hope you enjoy this sermon. For more information about Redeemer, please visit our website at RedeemerChristianChurch.com. Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading is from the gospel according to Luke chapter 20. We're going to begin our reading in verse 19, and we're going to read through verse 26. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor." So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God, the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Almighty and everlasting God, we thank you for the gift of your holy word. Thank you for your revelation. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, that we might know you and that we might worship you. I pray that your Holy Spirit that inspired these words to be written would give us eyes, that we would be able to behold Jesus Christ, your Son. And I pray that in beholding him, we as a people, as your people, would be able to bear his image to the world around us. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. I mean, you can have your seat. We're in a section of the gospel according to Luke where Jesus has been encountering back-to-back controversies with the religious leaders that are around him. Ever since he has been in the holy city of Jerusalem, he has gotten into one altercation after another with the chief priests, with the scribes, with the religious authorities that are reigning over Jerusalem at this time, that are reigning over the religious situation and worship of God's people at this time. Up until now, they've simply been trying to humiliate Jesus. They've been trying to be able to, to show him that he's not as special as that he thinks he is. They're trying to stump him because they think that Jesus is getting too popular. Um, the people are paying attention to him way too much. He needs to be put in his place. He needs to be exposed as a heretic and as a simpleton. However, the more they've tried to pin Jesus down, the more his brilliance has shown. Every single time that they try to be able to show that they know more, Jesus shows his wisdom in a way that makes everyone around him astonished. After questioning Jesus' authority recently, Jesus has just given a teaching that has actually put the authority of the religious leaders into question. And at this point, he isn't directly come out and rebuke the scribes and the chief priests. But what he has done is he has told a parable that implies very heavily what he really thinks about these religious leaders. In this parable, 
There's this very clear division between the good guys of the story and the bad guys of the story, those that follow God and those that are antagonistic and wicked and opposed to God. And Jesus has made it pretty clear that the scribes and the priests are very much the bad guys. And so as our text begins today, there's this dawning revelation that is taking place within the hearts and minds of these religious leaders. They're saying, guys, I think Jesus is talking about us, and I think people are starting to listen to him. So now the scribes and the chief priests are no longer annoyed. They are enraged. They've been exposed. They have been humiliated in front of the people who are supposed to honor and respect them. They're used to getting all the attention, but now this upstart prophet from Galilee is on the verge of turning their entire world upside down. So now it's no longer enough to humiliate Jesus or to try to convince the crowd that he is indeed a heretic. In fact, they now need to destroy Jesus. They need to find a way that Jesus can be put to death. But They're in a little bit of a predicament because, first of all, they can't openly oppose or attack Jesus because he's, quite frankly, too popular among the people in Jerusalem. The crowds love Jesus. If they come out and arrest Jesus, the crowds might turn against them. Secondly, even if they could somehow capture Jesus, they don't have the authority as religious leaders to be able to put Jesus to death. They don't have the power of capital punishment. That's something that only belongs to the Roman officials. And so they need to somehow, in order to kill Jesus, put him at odds with the Roman Empire. So they come up with what they think is an unbelievably brilliant and unbeatable strategy. And what happens next is one of the most beautiful displays of the wisdom of Jesus Christ in the Gospels. So point number one Let's look at the trap of the religious leaders. The scribes and the priests, they decide that they're not able to come out directly against Jesus. They're not going to be able to approach him directly. And so instead, they hire mercenary spies to go and attend his teachings in the temple. Our text says in verse 20, So they watched him, and they sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Now, these spies pretend to listen to Jesus and to support Jesus, but beneath these masks, they are lions lying in wait. They want to destroy Jesus. Essentially, what they're trying to do is, through their questioning, they want to provoke Jesus into saying something that is treasonous against the Roman Empire. And once they have the public soundbite that they need, They're then going to turn Jesus over to the authority and the jurisdiction of the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. Now, Luke has some really interesting word choice happening here in the Greek language. In fact, the the Greek words that he uses for authority and jurisdiction are the exact same words that Paul uses and used in the exact same order that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 6, which is a very famous passage. I'll, I'll read that to you right now. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. This more than suggests what is taking place in front of us is more than just a simple conversation. 
This is more than just a theological debate. This is an event of spiritual warfare taking place in the ministry of Jesus Christ. And here is the trap that they are going to spring. They asked him, beginning in verse 21, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? First, they attempt to flatter Jesus. Jesus, we understand you and we know that you're an orthodox teacher of God's word. You really preach the word. You apparently aren't concerned about impressing anybody. You are a guy that tells it like it is. And Jesus, we're on your side. Jesus, we support you. And beneath this veneer of false support, they ask a question that is a very dangerous question to be answered. Is it lawful to give tribute, or in other words, to pay taxes to Caesar, or is it not lawful? Essentially, they're asking Jesus, is it possible for us as the Jewish people to retain a special and unique identity as God's people, but at the same time be good, loyal citizens of a pagan empire? Is it possible? Now, at one level, this is a question that many people would be asking if you're a Jewish people or person living at this time and in this place. If, if you're living here, this is something that you're asking, but you're afraid to ask out loud. But on another level, this question puts Jesus into a seemingly impossible situation to be able to get out of. Whenever I was growing up, one of my very favorite shows that I watched almost every single evening was Star Trek. And if you're familiar with the world of Star Trek, um, in order to be able to be able to go into outer space and to be able to be a part of a crew of a starship, you had to attend the Starfleet Academy. And if you wanted to be an officer that was able to command one of these starships, you had to undergo a very specific training exercise. And that training exercise was known as the Kobayashi Maru. The Kobayashi Maru was a flight simulation where you had to pretend to be a captain and you had a crew around you and you were placed in a simulation where you essentially had to battle within a no-win scenario. And so the point of the Kobayashi Maru was not to try to win or to defeat the test. It was try to be able to show that you had the ability to lead well with poise and with dignity and with leadership capacity and wisdom even in the midst of certain death, even in the midst of a no-win scenario. And the only person who, of course, was ever able to beat the Kobayashi Maru was Captain James T. Kirk. Essentially what the spies and the chief priests have just done is they have put Jesus into a Kobayashi Maru. There's no right answer to this question. Seemingly, this has put him in a place that he is inescapable from. He is not going to be able to come out of this experience looking good at all. Is he going to answer according to the expectations of the Jewish people? Or is he going to answer according to the demands of the Roman Empire? Because if Jesus answers in any type of way that appears to be pro-Caesar, instantly he is going to lose the support and the popularity he has among the Jewish people. But if he answers in any type of way that appears to be anti-Caesar, he is going to be tried for treason and executed as a criminal. Now, at a practical level, this shows that the subject of politics has always been a hard one for God's people. It's always put us in seemingly this impossible dilemma, this impossible type of situation. That was the century, uh, the first century, that situation. It's also the situation now in the 21st century in America. 
And the topic of government, really when you begin to understand that from a biblical perspective, it is a topic of tension. Because on the one hand, the Bible tells us that the authority of earthly government is God-ordained. And the key text here is Romans chapter 13, which says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now that's a challenging text. That, that could be a challenging text if you, there is a, a president of the opposing party you don't like that's currently in office. Or uh, that can be a, a challenging text if you're like saying, I just don't think that any of these people could possibly be righteous. Well, consider this. Romans chapter 13 was written by the Apostle Paul when Nero was the Caesar. Okay, that's, that's how bad the situation was then. And Paul, who's going to be martyred by Caesar, writes this statement that says that Earthly governments are, in some sense, ordained by God. In this way, Christians are to seek to be good citizens, that we are to submit to the leaders that God places over us, that we should pay taxes. And in a democracy like ours, it means that we really should participate in political processes that help lend towards a better city, a better state, a better nation. But on the other hand, the Bible also shows us that the kingdom's of this world often demand from us an allegiance and a devotion and even a worship that is only due to God. And that that allure of the kingdoms of this world is oftentimes conveyed in a metaphor that the Bible uses that's called Babylon. It's the system of the kingdom of this world. And and God has some pretty harsh things to say about the reality of Babylon. Here's one example in Revelation chapter 18. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, come out of Babylon, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. So here again we have that sense of tension that yes, we're to be in the world and participate in the world, but we are not to be of the world. That we are to look at the governments of this world with a sense of biblical tension and to live in that tension. That means that politics can be important and they can even be essential. But for Christians, politics can never be ultimate. They can never be our ultimate hope. They must be put in the right place. They must be understood for what they can do and what they can never do. That politics, at best, are but a flawed coping mechanism for a fallen world. That our ultimate hope, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, our ultimate hope, our truest hope, is Jesus Christ and his coming kingdom. That means that, yes, we can vote our conscience and write our leaders and contend for righteous policies, but we cannot afford to let politics become an idol that captivates our heart and imaginations and causes us to be more devoted to a political agenda than our call to love God with all of our heart and to love our neighbors as ourselves. We have to have discerning eyes that see, no matter what political party you're looking at, that the two political parties are essentially two sides of the same Caesar coin. If we ally ourselves too closely with a version of the kingdom of this world, and if that is the thing that is our hope in life and death, that means that we're going to lose our otherworldly and prophetic witness to a watching world. Christ would not allow himself to be bound by a false political dilemma and forced onto him by the kingdoms of this world, and nor should his people. Point number two is this, the brilliance of Christ. 
I've been teaching my son Solomon to play chess. In fact, he's on the chess team of his, uh, his school, an elementary school, and there's this special type of moon that's known as a brilliancy. Uh, a brilliancy is essentially a single move that changes the nature of a game. It can turn the tables upside down. When a brilliancy occurs, it's, it's usually when one player seems like he or she is losing the game, but then they spring a very sudden, creative, original move that puts his or her opponent on a sudden path of, of defense and an eventual defeat. The religious leaders think they've, they've been playing a pretty good long-term chess game against Jesus. They have developed a very airtight strategy. They think they have pinned Jesus into a corner and that he is about to be checkmated. But what they don't know is that Jesus has been in control of the game this entire time. What happens next is a a beautiful example of almost a a theological brilliancy. Look at verses 23 through 25. But he perceived their craftiness, and he said to them, Show me a denarius, whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Jesus sees through all the schemes. And the first part of his defense is really brilliant because it puts his opponents on the defensive. He says, show me a denarius. Show me this object that you're so concerned about. And he, he makes them produce it. And so seemingly, one of these guys pulls it out of their pocket and, and here's what Jesus is going to be handed. This is a Roman denarius uh, of, that was going to be passed around during the time that Jesus was alive. It has on here... It's a silver coin bearing the image of the current Roman emperor. And at this time, that's Tiberius Caesar. And the inscription that is on this coin reads in abbreviated Latin, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Jesus then asks a question with a seemingly obvious answer. Whose likeness and inscription does this have? And the response is automatic. It's it's Caesar's, of course. Now, this is brilliant for two reasons, because number one, the fact that this coin bears a graven image of something claiming to be a god is a violation of the Old Testament law. And secondly, that a person, an emperor, would claim to be a son of God is absolutely blasphemous. So in other words, Jesus is saying, guys, why are you so passionate about clinging on to an idol? Why not let it go? Why not give this blasphemous image right back to Caesar? Render to Caesar that which belongs to Caesar. And render to God that which is God's. It's that last line that I think would have really stung them. Give to God that which belongs to God. He's saying to them, Caesar's image is imprinted on this coin that you're so concerned about. But have you neglected the awesome reality that God's image is imprinted on you? First chapter of the Bible teaches us a, a brilliant and wonderful truth. This is Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. And the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. Saying, guys, I'm not primarily concerned about your taxes. I'm not primarily concerned about your politics. I'm primarily concerned with your heart because you were created to bear my image. When the people around him want Jesus to answer a question that would convey a sense of a solution for the political situation around him, when they want him to fix the problems of the world through politics, 
Jesus shows us the root of the deepest problems of this world are not with politics, but with our worship. That we are called not to be enchanted or consumed by the kingdoms of this world. We are called to behold and to bear the image of our God. So I'll tell you this. The world does not currently have a shortage of people expressing their political opinions very loudly. No one's saying, man, I just, I wish I knew what people thought about politics. I wish people would, would share their opinion, tell us what they really think. We have plenty of hot takes. We have plenty of moments of outrage and anger. What the world needs is for a people to truly bear the image of the God who has made us. So what we need to ask ourselves as the people of God, the people that have been given the task to be the people of God faithfully in this world, is do our lives truly bear the image of God? Do our friendships bear the image of God? Do our marriages and our families bear the image of God? Does the way that we engage our job and our vocations faithfully bear the image of God? Does the way that we treat those with whom we disagree with bear the truth that we believe in the dignity and the value and the honor that comes with the image of God? Does the way that we treat the widow and the orphan and the vulnerable and the weak show that we value the image of God? Does the wisdom with which we make our choices bear the image of God? You see, this is the brilliance of Christ. He refuses the dilemma. He will be neither a nationalist nor a revolutionary. He is and will forever be instead the Son of God and the Savior of men. In a world that's still shouting at us with what we are to do with the problem of Caesar, Jesus is still calling his people to the ever-present task of bearing his image to a broken world. But you see, there is a problem with this task Ever since the poison of sin entered into God's creation, the image of God that is within us has been marred. It hasn't been removed. It hasn't been abandoned from us. But it is fundamentally fractured and broken within us. So how is it possible for us to bear the image of God when that image within us has been so warped and marred by the reality of human sin? The answer that the gospel gives us is that God himself must renew and restore the image in us through the life of his son, Jesus Christ. The early church father, Athanasius, wrote a a very famous theological treatise called On the Incarnation. And he explored this idea of humanity's role in bearing the image of God. And he, he compared this idea of humanity bearing the image of God to an image of a portrait being on a canvas that was painted. And that canvas has essentially been ruined. It's, it's been stained. It's been broken. The only way for that portrait to be restored is not by trying to fix the portrait by itself, but for the, the person of which that portrait is to be taken to sit down again and to allow that image to be retraced and to be restored on the canvas. When Jesus Christ became a human, when he took on human flesh and he entered into his own broken creation to live the perfectly righteous life that we could have never lived in our own strength, when he died on the cross taking the penalty of our rebellion and sin, when he rose again in victory over sin and evil and death, he made it possible for the image to be restored within us. Now, at this moment in the Gospel of Luke, all Jesus' enemies can do is marvel in silence. 
They can't say anything to him. But there will be a day that comes when Jesus will soon be condemned to a Roman cross. He will die, but he will die on his own terms. As New Testament theologian N.T. Wright comments, he says the accusers have failed this time, but Jesus knows and Luke's readers know that they will soon succeed. The leading Jews are going to hand over to Caesar not only the coin that bears his image and his false title, the Son of God, but the human being who truly bears God's image and who truly bears that title. But in that act, they are unwittingly offering to God the one stamped with the mark of self-giving love. The cross itself is taken up both into Caesar's purposes and God's. Caesar's favorite weapon, the cross, becomes God's chosen instrument of salvation. So Redeemer Christian Church, may we be a people that refuse to be enchanted by the kingdoms of this world and the false dilemmas that would be imposed upon us by the kingdoms of this world. May instead our focus be an everlasting commitment to bear the image of God, the image of our Creator and our Redeemer. May we render to Caesar that which is Caesar's and render to God that which is God's. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have sent the light of your Son into our darkness. I thank you that you have sent Jesus into our brokenness and to the impossible brokenness of the kingdoms of this world. Lord, I do pray by the gift of your Holy Spirit that you would give us eyes to see your truth, to see your wisdom, to see your way. That we would be a people that behold and marvel at the reality of your kingdom instead of being wrapped up in the kingdoms of this world. Lord, I pray for the supernatural, spirit-inspired wisdom of Jesus to rest upon this congregation. May we be a people that rightly reflect the glory of your name. May we be a people that bear your image faithfully to the world that is around us. Lord, so would your spirit empower us? Would your spirit inspire us? Would your spirit equip us to be that people that faithfully bear your image to a world that needs to see your face? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. for listening to this podcast from Redeemer Christian Church in Amarillo, Texas. For more information about Redeemer, please visit our website at RedeemerChristianChurch.com.